0: There are several references to the train to oblivion in some of these papers. This is, this is real. What, what's that? Just use suing instead. Just use suing. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's all right. That Someone said something, not. sure. Now, um, uh, I want to get to your papers for five, and then we get into six today. But we had some uh, discussion after class uh, yesterday about this homologumina anti anti-legumina uh, business. And uh, JB followed me all the way into the quad, and um, I, I thought we were going to have a threatening situation there, but that was diffused. Um, then we encountered Seleska, and uh, Professor Seleska, you know, I asked him if he works with this distinction. He said yes, and that disturbed JB even more. So, uh, um, and, you know, we, and we basically talked about the possibility of using this homologumina anti-legumina distinction in the Old Testament. And he confirmed what I was saying and basically said that, uh, you know, the following books could be considered anti-legumina. You have the wisdom literature. So you would have uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, Lamentations, um, Esther, and then Ruth, and Ruth as well. Um, And then the other ones that I mentioned from the Apocrypha that were sort of the contestants, you know, like uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sirah. Um, It reminded me of Maccabees uh, also. Judith would be another one like that. Um, Now, essentially, the way we laid that out yesterday is really the way the church thought about these things um, for 1,500 years. And it really was only with, as I said, the arising of Lutheran orthodoxy. And I mean it wasn't only Lutheran. That was a general movement of the Enlightenment in the uh, 17th century that they started thinking in terms more of overall inspiration and kind of equality of these, uh, these books and so on. But Luther essentially, I was talking to Jeff Klo about this today, and uh, he said, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't able to get that from him today, but I'll try to bring this from a future class. He said he has a sample of the table of contents of the New Testament in one of Luther's Bibles in which Luther lays out the books of the New Testament, he numbers them, numbers 23 books, and then at the end, kind of indented with no numbers, were the four books of which he was the most suspicious, which were Hebrews, James, Jude, and the book of Revelation. So you might say, and this was the question, JB, that you asked, you you might say he actually... Laid out his Bible according to the way that we're talking about that, you know, as opposed to just discussing it and everything's uh, sort of mixed around and so forth. Um, so, if uh, if you wanted to raise or other people want to raise some questions, I want to get onto these other papers because, as I say, properly, this is handled more in the EN 107 or six course on John and the Catholic Epistles. Um, We do talk about it uh, some in EN 105, which is the Synoptic Gospels course, but uh, in in this course, I want to set this within the context of semantic matrix and getting what signifiers you're using, what are the keys to the matrix, and so on and so forth. But let's uh, take a few questions if you want. JB, did you want to bring up... No, I was just looking for more clarity.: Yeah, okay. Buzz. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with the argument of the scriptures being inspired and saying that perhaps some of the books might not be totally authentic? All right, um, I would answer that question. So, all right, the question is what about them being inspired and how does that play into it? Um, my understanding is that for the early church, unlike us, It was not so much inspiration that was critical as apostolic authority. That is to say, lots of stuff was seen as inspired or spirit-led. But that didn't mean that thereby it had this authority that was foundational for all of your deliberations. So, the Spirit may have filled uh, Mary to sing the Magnificat, okay? But that's not canonical unless it's in Luke's Gospel. Uh, people were inspired by the Spirit to do a number of different things. It doesn't mean that it becomes the canonical matrix that you use. To judge against every other thing. So I think our categories, I guess the way I would say it is that we tend, yeah, this would be a good way to put it. We tend to exalt the category of inspiration. The early church exalted the category of apostolic or prophetic, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not built on the foundation of the inspired guys. See? So I, I think that sort of the categories are different that are held up to be foundational. You, no, okay, yeah. If this takes you too far, yeah. how do we talk about this distinction with congregation members without making them too nervous about trusting <laughs> anything that's in the Bible? You mean like J.B.? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, th- this is a good question. So now, how do we approach this with our congregations? Well, now, believe it or not, I have gone all through this with my adult class at St. Paul's De Pere here in the St. Louis area. So uh, it takes a while, you know, to go through. And what I think is critical to establish is that what's critical to establish is that just historically, these two sections, the Megalion, which are the Gospels, and the Apostolicon, which are Paul's epistles, are the center of the New Testament. And those circulated together, also Paul's letters, See, Paul's, it wasn't just that like second Corinthians went around or Philippians went around. They circulated in a collection and those then became the center of what later on within the next couple of hundred years would have been the homo So the church, now see, if you take a look, for example, JB, if you take a look at, um, the epistles of Ignatius of Antioch. He was taken to be martyred in Rome. And on his, on his trip to Rome, I mean, that's all along the Roman Empire there, along the Mediterranean, he wrote epistles to churches, uh, Ephesians and so forth, the Tralians to uh, Magnesia and so forth. Um, well, he will quote things every once in a while. It looks like he's quoting the scriptures. Or take the didache, the teaching of the twelve. That will be quoting passages. Well, where are these passages from? Matthew. Sometimes it looks like there are snippets of Pauline texts, see, like uh, Ephesians or something like that. Mostly from the Gospels. You don't get these, these guys quoting from like 2 John or something like that, or, or the book of Revelation. So these were, the, these were the things that were the foundation of the church. And we have, uh, you know, the earliest manuscript evidence that we have of anything in the New Testament is P52, a little snippet of papyrus about the size of your hand from the Gospel of John which is generally dated from around the year one hundred and twenty-five it is a remarkably early piece but it's from the Gospel of John and if you look at the other earliest manuscript fragments they're essentially gospel fragments or Pauline fragments and there is good evidence with P64 and uh, P4 Or is it P6? I have to look here. Uh, These were um, parts of one manuscript. And they essentially... uh, Take your Greek New Testaments here. Let's take a look at this. Uh, Go to the back. Uh, It's uh, P4. So this will be at the very back of your Greek New Testaments after the end of the book of Revelation. So if you just kind of flip on... On beyond that, you will see wh- with the codices. So this page will look like this: the codices of the Greek and Latin in this edition. All right, and uh, you'll see P4 is from the third century and contains portions of the Gospel of Luke. And then, if you go on. And you go to P64, which is uh, a couple of pages down, P64. This is around 200. And these are generally considered to be parts of the same manuscript. They didn't think so at first, but now they do. And you'll notice that Matthew is contained in um, uh, in that manuscript. And then from the 3rd century, right below at P65, you can see the, the uh, Roman numeral 3 from the 3rd century, uh, First Thessalonians. Um, if you go up a little bit to P45 and P46, which are very early, 3rd century and around 200, you'll notice that you have Matthew, and uh, you have uh, uh, Mark and Luke and John, and you have some Acts of P45. And then in P46, you have uh, uh, Pauline material. And, and who was the one who brought this up? Uh, 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 Dave, I think maybe, was it you or was it Ozzy? Somebody brought up the book of Hebrews as being Pauline. Who was the one who raised that point? Oh, you did, yeah. You'll notice that Hebrews is included here amongst the Pauline epistles. Um, in um, in P 46 but when you look at these that you know this and this those are always the center of what you've got and those are the foundational documents of the church so you work out from there and everything else so these are the keys to the matrix and everything else has got to be related to those things in that kind of an order so as I say even though the Humilagumina include things like Acts and first Peter and first John uh, they don't show up with near the uh, uh, persistence that these do I also want to point out to you the way in which these, uh, with those uh, um, those manuscripts that I showed you there, the way, for example, with P4 and P64, Matthew and Luke are together in the same manuscript. See, so essentially these things circulate. I'm going to put this over here on the board. These things circulate as a collection. In fact, there's good evidence. You get this in En107. There's good evidence that maybe Paul gathered his own letters together to circulate. We know, for example, in the ancient world that Cicero did. Cicero made collections of his own writings. This was not uncommon. So the notion of gathering together your writings and then to have them circulate as a corpus would have been fairly common in the ancient world, and that's what we get here. Now, we'll draw this to a close with the following observation then, which I said yesterday. It's very important for you to know this. Very important. The Gnostic Gospels of the second century, and we don't have any evidence for them, even existing before about 150. In other words, the letters of Ignatius do not quote the Gospel of Truth, or something like this. <clears throat> the Gnostic Gospels essentially circulate independently. They're sort of like independent contractors or independent competitors. They do not circulate in the collection, in the corpus, with the foundational documents. And this is why I emphasized this yesterday, and this is extremely important. It's not like this is always portrayed. 30 marbles in a box and they pick out four. No, no, no. It's like the battery pack that circulates by itself and other people throw other batteries into the box later on. So you can say there are 30 batteries in the box, but it essentially misrepresents what the situation is. I think it's easiest to understand, uh, J.B., and to deal with my point here, and this is why I think it's actually pretty helpful to do it in this sort of semantics way, to do it according to Addendum 5B, where you're thinking of this as part of how you actually interpret communication, how you interpret documents generally. And we're saying that these things are... Um, are the focus and the center. And they were indeed uh, gathered in these collections. It's probable, I'm talking historically, it's probable that the Paulines were gathered first um, in in terms of just the sheer, like, when did it happen, kind of in his lifetime. But with this this circulation here, it's so odd. I, I think this is right. I don't think I'm saying a falsehood here that there is no manuscript evidence for Luke Acts ever circulating with the books next to each other like that like the Luke Acts corpus somehow it always circulates Luke with the other gospels then Acts could be maybe part of it or something but it's not you know we always talk like this Luke hyphen Acts Luke Acts well I'm not saying that it's not Luke-Acts, but I will tell you it didn't circulate that way. Okay, now let's, uh, uh, let's go to some of your questions here. Now, um, Whedon is interesting here. <clears throat> now this is from chapter 5, we're backing up to the main chapter and then we'll head on again. Could you please explain polysemy in terms of not a super meaning? So another polysemy, that the same signifier can sign several different meanings. So it's not a super meaning, but rather in the question of whether or not a word or context can have multiple legitimate meanings simultaneously. All right. Why is polysemy not a super meaning like we've been inveighing against here? Uh, Take take the Hebrew barach, which is to bless, but in other contexts means to curse. Okay? That's polysemous. So, uh, it has meanings of bless and curse, and it do, uh, or curse. It doesn't have a super meaning, such as you curse, but it's really a blessing, or you bless somebody, but you're hoping he's cursed, or something like that. It's not a super meaning, and it doesn't mean both at the same time, but I'm really much more concerned that it doesn't have a super meaning. Okay? It doesn't have a super meaning. It can mean this, and it can mean that, but, um, you know, an, an example would be, um, I may have used that in this class, um, <clears throat> run. You know, she ran her stocking, or she ran the company, or she ran the marathon. That's polysemous But there's no giant meaning like, when her stocking got the what they call in England, they laddered the tights, you know, because it kind of looks like that. That when the the tights ripped, that it did so quickly and authoritatively, because that's like running the marathon and running the company. See, you can't do that kind of thing, but it does play in various semantic fields. I guess I was wondering if and that's a kind of a big difference between bless and curse, yes. but if the, uh, Meanings were closer to one another. Right. Uh, And. Okay, let's take law. Context to tell you which one it was. Right, you have to. Right, but context wasn't enough. Right. How would you be able to determine which one to use? That's why people argue. Like, for example, remember that example in Romans 8 we looked at? The law of sin and death or the law of the Spirit. And some people say, oh, it's the Pentateuch that promotes sin and death. And some say it's the reign or rule of sin and death. And so, in a commentary, you actually have arguments that go on about this. Yeah. Um, Now, that's not the same, Andy, as a double entendre where you actually intend both meanings at the same time we talk about that in chapter eight but in that case it's not a giant meaning I mean this and I mean that at the same time right, it's like I'm saying two sentences and I want you to hear them both See, and that's a little different thing than giant meaning now on the business of register I'm not sure of the meaning of this sentence. Has the word guys be used on a specific register? What mean you that by? Are you actually reading that off my paper? Yes. Let me put this on for the world to see. Has the word guys be used on a specific register? Or did you mean... Is it used on a specific register, or has it been used, or what? Or can it be used? I think can it be used. Well, I would, now this is a very interesting one. On an informal basis, informal basis, guys can be used, and then, Andy, it, it's high on the taxonomic scale, and it covers both men and women. So you have a group of teenagers you say, Hey, guys, you want to, you know, and the girls are not offended. But if you talk about guys and gals or something like that, then all of a sudden it does become, that's like the man-man-woman thing on, on the taxonomic hierarchy, yeah. But guys in really informal talk can occupy this higher level like man encompassing both man and woman. Um, Mark, we're getting to syntax now, and you talk about the difference between syntax and semantics. Now I want to just read specifically, Seth, just kind of like, did I really write that? Just listen to this. <clears throat> I understand from the reading that syntax is part of semantics, I and mean, that's my contention. Most people in the world don't think that, alright, they're, they're wrong. <laughs> I see that syntax deals with the relationship of the words. Mark, be more specific. By words, do you mean the signifiers? Or do you mean the conceptual signifies elicited by the signifiers? Or do you mean both of those at the same time? See, this is one of the problems with kind of just talking. The re- Syntax does not have to do with the relationship of the words in this sense like we had in chapter 4, two inches apart. Okay, so by words, what do you mean? Probably the signifieds. Probably both of the ones you were talking about. The, the now the signifieds are the concepts. Concept. Yeah, okay. So um, generally speaking, What people mean by syntax is the relationship between the signifieds, although they tend not to actually distinguish with the signifiers, okay? But relationship is signaled. The nature of the relationship is signaled. And therefore, everything is signaled or signed what's related to what and what the relationship actually is seems to me you're talking about semantics because semantics is about signing things and relationship meaning of relationship is not something fundamentally other than the the meanings of individual signifiers so relationship among the meanings is no different than meanings themselves it's part of the totality of meaning so you've got to see that the meaning of the, the meaning of the whole is the meaning of the whole, not just an assemblage or heaping up of the meanings of the parts. I think the problem with seeing syntax as something separate is you get this impression. You take the individual words and get individual conceptual signifieds from them. Then what you do is you somehow relate all this stuff well except the the meaning of the whole is the meaning of the parts in relation to one another see and all of that is signed and you can't even get remember when we put up that thing from Ephesians 4 and i said that you don't even know what diakonia means the service unless you have your your structure of the whole thing see it is it's the meaning of the complex and everything is signed for you. Now, sometimes it's sort of shorthandy because you're just standing stuff next to each other, all right? But everything is signed for you, and the relationships between the things are signed and and have meaning just as much as the individual parts have meaning. Okay. Um. Ah. Chris, this is very interesting. For clarification, you state that generally, which words and their meanings, Mark, which words and their meanings, are to be related to one another is itself signified, as is the relationship among those words and meanings. So, in other words which ones are in the matrix are signified and the relationship among the parts of the matrix is signified See, that's why its part of semantics I gather Chris continues from the use of generally that based on the signifiers you note in section C the key of the matrix is easy to define more often than not however you note that there are often problems in defining the key signifier or the relationship, and you note a few options. Now, that word generally, Chris, is a great weasel word. And I have it in there because of instances like that one from Colossians 3 by J.P. Lowe. Remember where all of a sudden the last colon it says, when Christ appears. Alright? Now you're not sure where it goes. And what the relationship is. Is it cause? Is it adversative? Is it reason further? Or, you know, whatever. So that's what I mean by generally. You know, as an example, in the previous clause, you have a gar, for you have died and you're, you know, like that. All right, so you know what it's related to and what the relationship is. That's generally the way it is. But sometimes, whammo, there'll just be this thing put right there and you have gotta start drawing the lines that's the first thing you've got to start drawing the lines and at the same time see okay it's related to that now what is the relationship and that's where it gets difficult that's why I say generally now let me repeat what I said yesterday that is so important here realize you are doing this and when you're doing a sermon from a Pauline epistle You've got to draw all the lines, and you've got to see not only what's related to what, but how it's related. This is what Jeff Gibbs does by having the guys who have his courses, like in the Pauline epistles, and he has them diagram out the sentences. I mean, think about this. Those of you who had me for Greek, diagramming is what we're talking about with drawing the lines. That's what diagramming is. So you diagram a sentence like for example you say Tom hit Jim in English okay when you diagram what you are doing is saying that this functions in this is related to this a- activity but when you put it like that it is functioning in a doer role as opposed to a receiver role which is on the other side of that vertical line that doesn't go all the way through. So diagramming shows you what's related to what and how. In an inflected language, you have built-in diagramming by endings. In our language, we stand words around next to each other, so you get John hit Jim or Tom hit Jim, Jim hit Tom. If you reverse the order, you're reversing what? Relationship. And the order signifies the relationship among the parts. That's why it's part of semantics. See, that's signed for you. It it signifies the relationship among the parts. Inflected languages do it by endings. That's why word order essentially is flexible in an inflected language. So, uh, So generally, and you're right to leap upon this, Chris, Uh, generally this is so where we start getting in trouble is when we're not sure how that relationship exactly goes because it's not signed for us. Then it's just the flow of thought. Now you remember what I did in Ephesians 4. I said that I was a lot more comfortable with a meaning in Ephesians 4 about these five offices were for the outfitting of the Saints comma for the work of ministry comma you know each one separate and part of my reason was the general flow of thought because earlier it said that uh, uh, he who uh, descended you know uh, ascended and gave good gifts to men, and he gave these gifts of the apostles and prophets well presumably He gave the gifts so that they would do something, not that they would get somebody else to do something. See? But now I'm working on the logic of the argumentation. That's always tougher, and that's exactly where you're going to keep getting arguments from people, because you don't have a gar or a tuta then, you know, or something like that. Now, you also said here, How do we go about, now this was good, how do we go about making a decision on what is the best interpretation? In these difficult cases, do we appeal to our own principles of interpretation? I've got to say again what I've said before, but it just bears repeating. And that is, it's what gives you the greatest totality of. Understanding with the fewest loose ends, okay, plus the totality that it takes care of has got to also take into account what looks like the most important stuff. Now, all that's negotiable, as you would understand, okay? But the reason I put in this last thing, it's not just what takes care of the most. But also, what takes care of the most, including the most important stuff—that's part of my argument against the um, uh, dispensational millennialists. They actually can take care of more passages than we can. They just can't take care of the really important ones. See? So, in other words, if you have a passage like Second Corinthians one twenty that says. As many as are the promises of God in him, Christ, is the yes. Now, that passage looks like, anticipating chapter 6, on level 1, it's stating a pretty key to the matrix kind of a thing. Now, I would say, Chris, at that point, if in your interpretation of the Old and New Testament, Christ isn't somehow the center but you got these various promises being fulfilled to the Jewish people and a bunch of other things like that. I'm thinking you're not doing this right. See, you can you not only have to get a lot of passages, you got to get the key passages taken care of. Now, we're all disputing all that with them. But the proof of the truth guys of my position is simply this. This is why arguments keep going. See, because you can't agree on the matrix, you can't agree on the key to the matrix. So the the whole thing is kind of moving like that, right? In general, I would say, Chris, thank you very much for this uh, question. Uh, In general, I would say that when you're having these kinds of discussions. Where you want to go is at the key to the matrix problem. See, once you get that, a lot of other stuff falls in place. What's really counterproductive are arguments like, "Yeah, but what about Zechariah 13:1?" Yeah, well, what about Second? You know, I, I mean, that that you, you got to get straight what your key is for the whole matrix. Now, this is uh, uh, Dan. This is. Uh, uh, related to your question now, I found it interesting that the list of things that signif- that uh, things that signify which conceptual signifieds are to be interpreted together in a matrix, is identical to the list that signifies what the actual relationship is. Why are these two lists the same? Well, <clears throat> I guess let's take that backwards, Dan. I guess what I would say let's take gar for or because. Not only does that signifier tell you about what the relationship is. In other words, whatever clause it's heading up, that clause will be giving a reason. Okay? It will also, though simultaneously, be making it subordinate to another clause, and it should be indicating which clause i.e. conceptual signified it's actually subordinate to probably by its order so it does two things it does something specific give you reason but also when it heads up a clause it says hey this thing coming along what we would loosely call the gar clause Say. This thing coming along is a clause. It's related to another one. It's related in a subordinate way, and by the way, it's related to this thing. See, so it it sort of does those two things. You know, we rarely think about that. A gar sort of marks out a section of um, text as a unit that's distinct from the main clause to which it is subordinate. So it marks out. What's a kind of a subpart of the matrix? Then, in addition, what the heck is the relationship? Ah, it's a reason relationship. Going back to that Colossians passage from J. P. Low, that's exactly why when you get to the last part, when Christ appears, who is our life, it's so difficult. There's no transitional thing. See, now the when hote means that a new clause is coming. We don't have any idea what it's related to at that point, right? Uh, Thank you. That was a very interesting question. Um, By the way, you also appended another thing. I just wanted to note this. This is interesting. When it comes to our hearers, how do we know that the signifiers we use in a sermon will elicit the conceptual signifieds we desire? We don't. And this is one of the reasons that people go out hearing all kinds of things that you didn't think that uh, you were saying. This is why J.B. goes out and start saying all kinds of untruths about this class uh, um, And and by the way when you look at it like this Dan when you look at it like this you realize what a simultaneously exciting and treacherous thing rhetoric oratory speaking actually is because you're trying I mean, let, let's speak Dan here for a second. You're trying to elicit like conceptual signifieds in your people. Now, you're trying to do more than that. There's the whole thing of the impact of a text, uh, which we call pragmatics, chapter 12, you know, that, they, that you should accuse or comfort or something like that. But I mean, leaving that aside, you're trying to elicit the same things. That's why you've got to work so hard at this. I think the first step honestly the first step to doing this right is realizing how treacherous the process is and this is why for example in this class this is why I keep going and finding stuff in newspapers and illustrations and clip stuff out of magazines and stuff you've got to try your darndest to get people um, you know on the same wavelength you are, and then when they 're on the same wavelength, they actually hear the same radio show you know so uh, if you take a look in that book, and I think you were referring to that on page ninety five that big diagram, you know those two cs 's up on top you 're trying to get them together like that, but there 's always something of that distance, and that by the way that 's exactly why <laughs> This is funny to say. Most writing, not my book, but most writing essentially has a high degree of redundancy. You keep repeating. I do I do the redundancy in class, not in the book. Keep repeating, keep pointing out this same thing. Why? So that the conceptual signified start to merge like this. that question's actually <clears throat> as simple as it looks. It's a very profound question for people who are preachers of the gospel. Thank you. It's good. Um, OK. Um, uh, Joe, I, I'm just going to quote this from your paper. You found this quotation to be important. What is the key element in determining the existence of a semantic matrix? and or to provide a touchstone or anchor for its interpretation. Always the key. And that's the argument on that Ephesians 4 passage. Nobody can agree what it is that's actually the key that allows you to to do that thing. You know, is it the pattern of the signifiers? Is it the thinking? You know, what is it exactly? Um, Now, Billy. Billy. When referring to Hebrew, this is an interesting question. I was always under the impression that the original text did not have punctuation markers. That is correct. That is essentially stuff that was done by the Masoretes, and most of those Masoretic markings aren't until A.D., like the 5th century A.D., and then the 9th and 10th century. You know, the notion, the notion that what we have in our Biblica Hebraica is sort of what David had or something like that is way off the mark because this accurate handing down of the text, we talk about that in text criticism, <clears throat> this actually doesn't occur until many centuries after Christ A.D., so in, in this respect, it's, it's sort of like this. Before that, it wasn't that same desire for precision. It's kind of like me pacing off this room, okay, and saying, all right, from here to the end about 6 feet. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. 36 feet. This room is 36 feet long now I've done a kind of a fairly reasonable estimate and now Joe and Buzz accurately hand this figure of 36 feet down to future generations and their children hand that accurate you know that 36 feet down but you gotta ask yourself what was going on before the Masoretes? this is why No one can overestimate the significance of the discoveries at Qumran, 1947 and following. Because it was the first time, Billy, that we got the Old Testament text back. Now I'm talking about substantively. There there might have been little fragments or silver fragments or something. But from the 10th century A.D., to the first century AD in one swell foop text criticism advanced 1000 years this is why this is such an incredible discovery and the greatest biblical discovery of the 20th century now you're right about all this stuff where's the off and all that that's all I mean I'm just going to take your point here that's all negotiable stuff the vowel pointing is negotiable. There were different. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this. This is described in chapter three of the book. There were different vowel pointing systems. So the vowel pointing. In fact, <clears throat> the Lutheran Orthodox theologians in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, uh, well, 17th century and 18th, argued about whether or not the vowel points were inspired. Why? Because that's actually kind of a later addition. And uh, uh but you know, specifically to your things, these punctuation marks in the text are negotiable. That is correct. That's critical to realize. Because the matrix changes if the punctuation changes. It's exactly right. All right. Now I, I did want to KANIPA. I did want to speak to this uh, question, because it's completely wrong. All right. It seems that that most all of the divisions between the Protestant denominations who hold a high view of Scripture, a critical point right there, is because they are each focusing on a different part of the canon. Each has a different canon within a canon. That is correct. That is correct. Now you go off the rails. For instance, Calvinists interpret things via the sovereignty of God, Lutherans via the person and work of Christ, and Pentecostals via the work of the Spirit. Is this an accurate understanding of the canon within a canon? No. Okay, let's move on. Uh, No, no, I was thinking um, more in terms not of what thematic content you were using, but rather what... Books or parts of books you privilege. Now, see, here would be an example. <clears throat> Lutherans privilege the beginning of Pauline epistles. A lot of Reformed people would privilege the ends of the epistles, where you get all kinds of admonitions, how people should live. See, that's kind of more the canon within a canon. Now, what you're talking about in terms of the content, is also true, okay? I don't want to dispute that point. But to the signifier issue, you'd say, I mean, this is crudely, crudely put, but let me put it like this. <clears throat> what pages do you turn to when the going gets tough, you know? See, what pages do you turn to when somebody asks you, what do you really believe? That's your canon within a canon. So, you know, not so much like what doctrines you talk about, but what pages do you turn to? And so, let's just put it real simply, Lutherans don't turn to the book of James. Roman Catholics might. We would turn to Romans or Galatians or something like that. That performs our canon within a canon. And uh, uh, I will say this that just in general your observation is correct that various parts of the scriptures are privileged differently and it gives you for various reasons and it gives you a different uh, touchstone and key then it's exactly right Um, uh... josh maybe getting over time here. i I did want to get to this question which was extremely interesting When we read Paul's letters, if I am not mistaken, they are arranged largest to smallest. How are we to use that as a context? This is very interesting, and I don't know if most of you realize this. In the Megali, I'm sorry, in the Apostolicon, in the Pauline epistles, there is a definite ordering of the epistles. And this is how it goes. Epistles to churches come first, and then epistles to individuals. And then this goes from large to small, and this goes from large to small. That's why Philemon is last. Not because Philemon is less important, it's the smallest one of the epistles to the person. And I mean, look, Philemon was in Colossae. Why isn't Philemon right next to Colossians? Well, it's an individual one. Now, here's the point I wanted to make, Josh. What's interesting about this is this puts Romans first. <clears throat> now, hear this point correctly. Whether or not the church intended Romans to be the lens through which you view the Pauline epistles. De facto it turns out to be that. Just like Matthew is de facto the way we think of the Gospels. So this is the difference between you know maybe intentionality and outworking or there is this German word that's helpful for this Wirkungsgeschichte, and that is the history of the actual working out of something. Wirkungsgeschichte. So, if you would talk about the actual working out of the way interpretation has taken place, as a matter of fact, Romans achieves a predominance in the interpretation of the Pauline letters by dint of its position in the canon. Just like Matthew does, just like Genesis does in the uh, Old Testament, right at the beginning, and just like Isaiah does at the head of the prophets. So, um, so the actual configuration of the canon has a semiotic, semantic impact. Okay. Uh, what I would like you guys to do, so we'll, we'll go to six next time. What I would like you guys to do is to take a look next time, in, in preparation for next time. I want you all to take a look at um, just a couple of simple verses in uh, Matthew. Matthew 2, 14 to 15. And this is about uh, um, uh, Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt. I want you to look at the Greek text of this, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to do a little exercise on interpreting Matthew, and we're going to take a look at uh, this passage and try to interpret it on the, th- the three levels of chapter 6. I've got a little exercise we can go through, and it'll be most helpful if you actually take a look at it ahead of time. Okay? Good. See you guys on Monday.